You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The truth is that we are in a climate emergency. We have less than 10 years to make substantial changes to our society and way of life and our economy. I want to stress from the outset that this pandemic is far from over. Those who have never fought for the colours they fly should be careful about criticising those who have. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Ewan Potts. But of course, the big news of the day is that Chancellor Rishi Sunak is setting out his plans for the economy in the government's budget and spending review. And not for the first time, we've already got a good sense of some of the measures that are on the way. In fact, so much so that the Chancellor got a telling off by the Speaker, Lindsay Hoyle. He said budget leaks were not acceptable and he'd repeatedly made clear that ministers must make important announcements in the House of Commons chamber first. Well, the rebound in the economy since the last set of forecasts should allow the Chancellor a big upgrade to his forecast, which will allow him some wiggle room when it comes to spending. But Bloomberg Economics say we're not in for a big budget giveaway, and many of the announcements so far have just been noise. Labour's shadow Treasury, Treasury Minister Bridget Phillipson explains what she would like to see. An immediate plan to support families through what's likely to be a pretty tough winter but then a budget that deals with the longer-term challenges within our economy and our wider society too, particularly on climate change and creating great jobs right across our country. Well, joining us now is Tobias Elwood, Conservative MP for Bournemouth East and also Chair of the Commons Defence Select Committee. Thanks so much for joining us today, Tobias. Let's start off with the budget. What would you like to hear from the Chancellor today? Well, I'd echo the comments just made. Uh, We've got COP26 literally just around the corner. And I think there's still some uh, anticipation, but also uh, concern about how we then adapt, how we adjust as an economy uh, to what we all want to do is is to cut back our CO2 emissions, but remain competitive. And the challenge we see is perhaps other countries not doing that. So there's one aspect of it. But other one is also how we're going to energise this post-COVID world that we're now uh, entering in. It touched on the fact that we've got a difficult winter ahead. We've already heard some outlines on universal credit. I think that will change a little bit because there was some uh, pushback when uh, the 20% increase was going to be uh, reduced. Uh, We're going to see, I think, some support for local councils as well. They found it very tough over the last couple of years. Uh, Leveling up, I'm sure we're going to hear a lot about that, of funding to support uh, the whole of Britain. And uh, there'll be individual packages to, for example, to helping the courts deal with the backlog there. Uh, But most critically, it will be education and the NHS. We've had a deficit of of, of learning uh, because of COVID. How do we make sure that we have 
the people that are skilled, ready to work, to take on, to be the future leaders, to be the future workers, uh, and of course the NHS, which has continued to be burdened not just with COVID, but with all the other things they have to deal with. Economists will be uh, arguing over the detail of the uh, the forecasts and the government's uh, spending plans, but a lot of families are going to be worrying about this winter. Lots and lots of things coming together, not least rising energy prices, a real strain on many family finances. What would you like to see the Chancellor do on that front? Well, we need a long-term plan when it comes to energy. We're too reliant on on many um, aspects from overseas. You can see you know, in Russia twiddling the, the taps, able to then ricochet through uh, the prices and so forth. We do need to become, I think, more independent uh, from an energy perspective. So energy security is something uh, that we can have greater reliance on. I'd love to see more effort, actually, into modular nuclear. I think this is something that Britain, uh, as a, because of our uh, skill sets in Rolls-Royce, for example, could easily push this forward and help move the dial on CO2 emissions as well. You can create a modular nuclear reactor in about six months. They cost one to two billion. It's something that we could actually showcase to the world uh, to help tackle those CO2 emissions and allow us to become more energy secure, which, of course, means that those prices don't go up and down as they've been doing. Mm, So more energy security. Looking at the government's finances, the UK's gross government debt is now £2.22 trillion. That's almost £80,000 for every household in the country. Are you satisfied with how the government has managed its spending over the course of the pandemic? I am. I think all countries, when you look at their debt, uh, the challenges they've had to face in supporting the economy to keep businesses you know, alive, to make sure they could incubate but then come out on the other side of this, and not only that, to make the health of the nation as well. It has been difficult. It has been challenging. My challenge to the government is, you know, the last time we had a big uh, issue such as this was during the economic crisis 2008, but then the machine itself had broken down, the banking systems and and the financial structures. That isn't the case this time. We have a strong economy. So it's more akin to, let's say, the Second World War. We took out a debt there. We paid it back over 50 years. And I would love to have seen a fiscal instrument created that meant that this 400 billion pounds that nobody anticipated having to to borrow, uh, could then be paid back over a long period of time rather than actually forcing all government departments to savings or face the prospect of increasing taxes or reducing government spending. These are difficult choices. I would love to have seen a a wiser, more cognitive plan to help us get out of this through the long term. And as we move out of what you might call wartime and into peacetime, a sort of a post-COVID world. Are you happy for that to continue, for the government to continue uh, borrowing money? Well, no, like I said, I would have preferred to have seen us ring fence this. Gordon Brown was actually the prime minister that finally paid off our World War II debt. And I think we should be treating this a bit like a a mortgage for your house. It it was a one-off. It was unprecedented. Uh, And yet what we're trying to do is, is, is sort out, balance the books over a couple of parliaments. And I think that will be tough. You know, the economy is we're wanting to, to grow, we're wanting to move forward, and the world's getting ever more competitive. You know, we want to be that high-tech superpower that the Prime Minister has spoken about. We can only do that if we actually liberate the um, businesses to be able to move and advance forward rather than taxing them heavily. And what about the way that things have been uh, leaked? A pretty heavy telling off by the uh, Speaker yesterday. I mean, this this isn't the first, Rishi Shunak is not the first Chancellor to leak things ahead of the budget by any means. But do you think uh, there is any way we can go back to the old days when everything is announced 
on the day and none of these announcements come out ahead of time? You know, it's a really good question. We, we like to think that Parliament is sovereign. This is where the announcements are always made. And the, and the Speaker is quite right to make these statements because that is a traditional way. But just the way 24-hour news cycle works, social media and so forth, being able to roll things out, they probably make the calculation it's worth the punishment that you're going to get, you know, the grief that you're going to receive from the Speaker when the fact that you've got all the news outlets talking about various aspects of it. So you can bleed it over three or four days rather than a deluge of information on the day itself, which actually can be quite hard to digest. Uh, turning to another subject, you questioned Defence Secretary Ben Wallace yesterday as part of your committee's uh, inquiry into events in Afghanistan. How how big a failure was the West's withdrawal from uh, Afghanistan? Yeah, it is the the failure itself is the decision to withdraw. After two decades, we we've handed back power to the very insurgency we went in to defeat. And understandably, there'll be many who served in the armed forces or. Uh, bereaved families, scratching their heads, saying, what was it all for? I've called for an inquiry so we can understand and learn where things went so wrong. The decision to actually withdraw troops, 2,500 Americans, was caught up in the U.S.-American election. The, the Both candidates were not honest with the American people to say the world will become more dangerous if we pull out of this spot. And it's a lesson for all parliamentarians, all politicians to say you've got to be frank and upfront with the electorate rather than trying to take, take shortcuts for short-term uh, gain. And the consequence now is that we're seeing a country, 40 uh, million people, uh, half of which will be close to, to starvation. There will be famine in this country. We have to, I'm afraid, now work with the Taliban to get UN organizations in there uh, to help those very, very people who now feel abandoned. And this is the real concern. Many of them will be so angry at the West. They'll actually want to support uh, the Taliban. They'll want to support extremism to have a go at the West because they feel that we, we cut and run. So you say working with the Taliban. What else do we need to do in Afghanistan to make the best of, of, of what we've done? Well, there's some bigger questions to do with, you know, the Americans made the decision to pull out. And there'll be many uh, people asking, well, you know, they are now look humiliated. Uh, where is their resolve, their commitment on the international stage? Don't forget it was Joe Biden that said America is back after Donald Trump was saying, you know, uh, uh, America is, is uh, you know, promoting America's interest indeed uh, against the, world, the rest of the world. He became very isolationist. Uh, so there was a lot of prospect when Biden came on board. But him pulling out, uh, China, Russia is looking at this and saying, what commitment has America got on the international stage? What's the purpose of NATO now as well? And where is the special relationship? Why weren't we told of the details of the American plans? Lots of questions for the international community and Britain, because I'm afraid you know, more international storm clouds are gathering. It's a, it's a very dangerous world we're heading towards over the next five to ten years. Can the UK do anything without the Americans anymore? Yes, well, this is a big question. It is we have operations in Mali, Operation At Atlanta. You remember the, the one off Somalia dealing with piracy? These were done without the Americans. So we need to get in the position to say, yes, we can lead if the Americans choose to politically back away. I'd actually say that militarily, they're always going to be there. Libya was a great example. When uh, we got involved there, the Americans didn't want to play, but they actually offered an aircraft carrier. They provided um, uh, heavy transport and uh, mid-air refueling. But it wasn't bleated out across the American um, media headlines. 
um, simply because politically they didn't want to get so uh, involved. So the Americans will always be there in support, but whether politically they want to lead, and this is what Britain does. We need to increase our appetite, our sport leadership, our statecraft, to be able to take on those areas where I'm afraid America has now become a little bit risk-averse. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Let's take a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. The UK has reported its highest daily death toll from coronavirus since the beginning of March at 263, adding to fears that tighter restrictions might be needed this winter. The number of people hospitalised is also at the highest since that period. Uh, There were just under 41,000 positive tests over the 24-hour period, but that data does include three days of totals from Wales due to an error. Meanwhile, a report says that despite being handed eye-watering sums of money, the COVID NHS Test and Trace programme has failed to meet its main objective. A group of MPs on the Public Accounts Committee says the initiative has not enabled people to return to a more normal way of life. It says its aims have been, quote, overstated or not achieved. The Test and Trace scheme has cost £37 billion over two years. And in today, Britain protesters are blocking a busy roundabout near the Dartford Crossing on the London Orbital Motorway, the M25 in Kent. Some of the demonstrators have glued their hands to the road and six people have been arrested. Activists have also been sitting on parts of the A40 in West London, causing disruption for motorists. And injunctions being granted against the group, banning them from interfering with traffic on key routes in England. Well, let's go back to the uh, big story of the day, the government's budget. Uh, Joining us now to discuss this, Bloomberg Opinion Editor Therese Raphael. Therese, uh, thanks so much for joining us again today. Now, inflation at the UK currently uh, 3%. The Bank of England says 4% by the end of the year. And uh, the chief economist at the Bank of England says maybe watch out for 5% inflation. How much will this be front of mind for the Chancellor as he looks at the government's finances? Yeah, well, I think the Chancellor will you know, be very mindful of the impact that that has on people's um, perception of how the economy is doing. So one of the stories that we'll try to tell today is that the economy has bounced back far faster and further than, uh, than predicted, you know, when we were... Uh, experiencing the largest slowdown of almost any major economy. And then there'll be new spending announcements. And they, the narrative um, we expect will be where, you know, this is a, a post-COVID budget. We are now coming back, you know, out of this pandemic and preparing for, you know, a much brighter future. And yet, as you say, if, if prices uh, that people are experiencing in the shops, um, at the petrol station, et cetera, are going up, so far, so rapidly, it you know the the what, what their lived experience may be very different than the narrative that the chancellor is uh, it, you know is spitting out at the dispatch box. So surely that is uh, one of the things that will be um, on his mind, and one reason I think we'll still see a focus on more spending. And what 
do you think he's likely to do in terms of 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 cost of living? Obviously, it's impossible to to predict these things exactly. But what are the, some of the areas you think he might want to focus on? Well, there's a lot of speculation over whether he will try to relieve the pressures on those who are, you know, least well off, particularly, you know, over the criticism that they've received in removing the 20-pound weekly uplift to universal credit. So I, I think, you know, I would be surprised if there wasn't something uh, to alleviate some of those pressures there. Um, you know, we may also see um, you know, giveaways on things like um, uh, alcohol um, taxes and, and that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, the, the, the real sort of, uh, I think, benefit that the chancellor is coming into this with is that 2021-2022 borrowing is, is being revised down, um, you know, by one count, you know, something like 60 billion pounds, which would take the deficit down. Um, now, that gives him more room to, well, both meet his new fiscal targets that we're expecting to hear announced, but also to, uh, you know, provide some further, you know, giveaways in the spring and closer to a next election. So, you know, I think he, this is going to be a budget where he's balancing uh, both the uh, need to kind of uh, show fiscal responsibility and continue to alleviate the pressures on the uh, on consumers, and at the same time hold something in reserve for the future. Of course, these uh, improved forecasts are, are improvements on what was a, a terrible picture. So, <laughs> the idea that the, that the country is sort of out of the woods and you know there's no more borrowing obviously is is not true. Do, do you think that? Uh, the Chancellor and other Conservatives are, are comfortable with where the, the government's finances are at the moment? Yeah, I don't think they're too worried at this point. But, uh, but again, inflation is really the big unknown because inflation changes uh, people's expectations. It changes their behavior. Um, and, you know, we know from the past that it can uh, be hard to control, that it can lead to a wage price spiral. And I think Sunak more than Boris Johnson is concerned about that. And that's where we've seen some of the tension between number 11 and number 10 appear over the summer. Yes, because of course, on that, we've already had two key measures. Haven't we? We've had the, the public sector pay freeze uh, coming to an end uh, and a, a six and a half percent hike to the living wage. Those things certainly don't come without without risks, do they? No, and um, you know, we'll, we'll, and then at you know at the same time, we've also seen a, a major tax increase with the national insurance, and uh, that that's likely to have an impact on uh, disposable income, obviously, and 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 people's perceptions of of the economy, and and that will feed into behavior. So I think there are a lot of unknowns. I mean, in, you know, the budget deficit, if it's you know dropping to around, you know, potentially. Two percent of GDP by 2025, 20, 2026. That's a you know that's a pretty solid place, um, and I think the Treasury will be pleased with those kinds of projections. Um, the question will really be how does it weather this winter, the crisis, uh, the fuel crisis and its impacts, the strains on the NHS. Um, will what it's what is being offered, uh, you know, in spending terms be enough to kind of carry people through what's likely to be a difficult short term. 
And you've written uh, on the uh, challenges of the uh, COP summit in Glasgow, which is just days away now. Uh, and aside from the enormous challenge of getting world leaders to ag- agree on these these very tough targets, which obviously is, is the key thing, what are some of the other uh, difficulties for the UK in, in holding such a, a massive conference like this? Yeah, I mean, there, there, there are all sorts of, There are all sorts of challenges when you're corralling so many people into uh, various negotiating rooms and trying to get a global agreement that, you know, deals with um, you know, decarbonization and reducing methane emissions and, and resolving tricky questions around trading carbon credits um, and uh, adaptation costs such as coastal defenses. There is just a huge amount to be done. Uh, but there's also a lot of will um, and, and pressure from the public to see results here. I think for the UK, there are some really specific challenges. So, um, you know, around electric vehicles, both Germany and France have introduced pretty big grants for electric vehicles, um, so 9,000, 6,000 euros, uh, respectively. Um, the UK is offering consumers, you know, much more modest uh, incentives to go electric. And I think that's going to slow the uh, adaptation of electric vehicles. And there's also, you know, questions around improving charging infrastructure. So Britain has a long way to go there. There's also managing uh, the UK housing stock, which is um, you know, about a third of it was built before 1945, and it's, you know, not terribly energy efficient. And so there are huge challenges in, um, you know, getting people to switch out gas boilers and, you know, providing better insulation. So all of that is part of the U.K.'s own uh, um process of trying to get to its net zero target, um, which is hugely ambitious. And, you know, I think we have to be honest and say, um, not on track at the moment. And what about targets for uh, other countries around the world? The the IEA says that if countries, uh, even if countries meet their current net zero pledges on time, that would only cut around 20% of the emissions necessary to be on track uh, to reach net zero by 2050. So so what what do we need to uh, hear from countries uh, during the the COP meeting? Yeah, I mean, when you read the IEA's report on this, which is, um, you know, extremely comprehensive, it's hard not to get a little bit discouraged. Um, You know, that said, there has been significant progress over the course of the last, you know, even um, uh, five years, but certainly, um, you know, since the early 90s. Um, I think a lot will depend on China. Um, It's the, you know, world's largest uh, emitter of greenhouse gases, I think 27% or so of total emissions. So uh, we won't see the presence of President Xi Jinping at Glasgow, but a lot will depend on, you know, the commitments that are made there and the commitments of, of you know, other countries uh, on, on a whole range of things. So, you know, the Paris COP was very much about setting the targets and getting countries to um, to commit to that 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, goal. This COP is really about concrete measures to reach it. And, uh, you know, we, we won't know immediately after. I think it will take some time. And some of these new measures will have to be phased in over time. But, you know, really at the end of those two weeks, uh, what we'll be looking for is more uh concrete measures that can be written into law and the financing to support the developing world as it transitions um, because it's going to be extremely costly uh, there. And just very briefly, how much of a blow is the non-attendance of of President Xi? 
Well, obviously, it'd be much better if he was there in a room. It would be, it would send a much different signal. That said, Xi hasn't left the country since the pandemic, so it's hard to know how much to read into the decision not to go to Glasgow. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.